This is Dot. And this is Lindsay. And you're listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscripts they love the most. Today, we are very pleased to be talking to Olivia Baskerville. Olivia is a PhD student at the Institute of English Studies, the School of Advanced Study, University of London. Olivia has a Master of Studies in Medieval History from the University of Oxford and a BA in History from King's College London, where she won the Elizabeth Levitt Memorial Prize for her work on the development of Anglo-Norman and Anglo-Scottish cross-border identities through charters and property law. Her PhD explores the rise of nationalist discourse around medieval manuscripts, manuscripts as items of, quote, national heritage, and the conceptualization of medievalism in early 20th century Britain. Welcome, Olivia. Hi. We're really happy to have you on. And you're actually, we, we let you cheat a little bit because you're going to talk about two manuscripts, aren't you? I am, I'm afraid. I, th- I thought if Lisa Fagan was supposed to bring fragments, then I get to bring multiple manuscripts. Yes, exactly. We actually, she, she talked about three. So it's like, okay, it's fine. And it's my <laughs> show and I can let people do whatever they want to do. So, so that's great. And it's a couple of great manuscripts too. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about these manuscripts? Sure. Um, so yes, thank you for your indulgence and thank you for having me on the show. Um, so the first manuscript that I ever really fell in love with uh, is called Doomsday Book. And it's a manuscript that qu- quite a lot of people have heard of. I'm not going to say most, mm-hmm. but like, especially in the United Kingdom, a lot of people have heard of because it's to some extent taught in schools. And it's in many respects seen as a foundational manuscript of the National Archives here in Britain. And it's a survey of what was taxable, amongst other things, in England in the 11th century after the Norman Conquest. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is, in many respects, a uh, dry administrative record, but it is also an absolutely fascinating document which records Britain as it was in a, or England specifically, England mm-hmm. as it was in a, in a, at a very specific moment in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about, it's almost a thousand years old now. Uh, it was made in 1086. And I, I, I just love it. I, it's, it's endlessly fascinating to me. It has so much detail and it's, it's a document that is, is very living. It's very alive today. It was last consulted for legal precedent, I believe, in 1982. So oh it, it's been oh, wow. a document that has lived on in bizarre ways through English history for the last thousand years. Um, right. Because of the information that it contains and, be- and, and because of the historical precedents that it sets and because of the way that we as a society refer to the past in order to legitimate certain uh, ways of relating to each other and legitimate certain property relations and that kind of thing. And so it's a really prescient living document that still has a lot of relevance today. And my second manuscript is in many respects, very, very different. Um, But in some respects, it's very similar. And it's a bound codex called the Codex Sinaiticus. And it's a copy of the Bible, of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's from the fourth century. So it's much, much older than Doomsday Book. And it was made probably somewhere in Israel 1,700 years ago, I suppose. That's a long time ago. Yeah, it's a really long time (laughs) It is the oldest copy of the New Testament that we have, a complete Mm -hmm. New Testament. And so we have all sorts of fragments of books of the Bible that are older than that. The Dead Sea Scrolls, I believe, are older and um, we have all sorts of bits and pieces every, uh, you know, all sorts of places that are older, but as like a, as a complete book, mm-hmm. certainly for the New Testament portion, it is the oldest complete kind of bound, recognizable book form that we have. And we have records of what we think was its making. So we think that we know to some extent who made it and where. Wow. And it was, it, it kind of, it has like, it has a long journey over that 1700 year period, but through a whole series of circumstances, it is now in the British library. 
Mm-hmm. And it was purchased in 1933 by the British Museum at, at the time, which then when the British Museum split into the British Museum and the British Library, it went to the British Library. But it was purchased in 1933 through a big crowdfunding campaign in the UK. And a lot of arguments at the time were made about why this manuscript was so important and why it had to be, it, it belonged at the time to the Soviet Union. And so mm-hmm. there were a lot of arguments about why it shouldn't be in the Soviet Union, why it should be in Britain, why it shouldn't be allowed to, for example, be bought by America. And it, it became a, a national treasure. I mean, it was considered yeah. a national treasure. And now it's in the British Library and basically nobody has heard of it. Far, far more people are taught a doomsday book than have ever heard of Codex Sinaiticus. And it's on display. You can go see it. You can't touch it, but you can go see it. <laughs> doomsday book, you cannot go see. It's it, right. it, it, We have copies. I have right here my, uh, my physical chunky <laughs> version of it. We have access to all of the text, but you cannot go see Doomsday because it is simply... It's considered too old. It's considered too precious. It's considered too fragile. Um, but the codex right. is very much kind of a lot. It's a lot more on display. It's a lot more kind of available to people. So yeah. So those are those are my two favorites, and and they're my favorites. I mean, we're gonna. I guess we're gonna get into why they're my favorites. But we'll we'll get into that. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah. Those so those are the two that I've that I've chosen to kind of bring along today for show and tell. Immediately, my first question, and maybe this is something that you're planning on getting into. In which case, we can do something else but i'm really interested in why there were arguments that code and i'm gonna say it wrong because i always i've always said it codex sinaiticus which is not (laughs) codex sinusiticus sinusiticus (laughs) (laughs) i can't say right so that book hard not to say codex (laughs) okay Um, as in um, sinaiticus it comes it it was brought to the soviet union from the monastery of saint Catharines on mount sinai right i think that's why i want to say sinai i want to say sinaiticus but it's sinaiticus yeah okay so codex sinaiticus what were the arguments that it was a national treasure? Because it was never, it was, there's no like obvious English connection. So why, what, what were these arguments? I'm just, I want to yeah. know. I mean, that's, that's a really good question. And th- that is one of my uh, oh, that is one of my favorite things in the world, but I'm, I'm happy to kind of get into that one now. We can start. Why don't we start with that? Cause I, I need to know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, one of my favorite things is that both of these manuscripts are labeled as national treasures. And it's interesting to me why that is and how that's been created. And Sinaiticus is a, is an interesting one. It it was not made in Britain. It had never been to Britain. It's not in English. It's in Greek. It has very little relation to the King James Bible, which in 1933 was to some extent the, still the, um, the kind of cultural bu- Bible of England. Um, mm-hmm. There have been revisions to the King James Bible in the 1880s, and so um, they had something called the New Authorized Version, which is a kind of revised second version. Um, that wasn't very popular. People still liked they liked the the lyricism and the the literary quality of the King James Bible, but the King James mm-hmm. Bible was derived from a series of Greek and Latin manuscripts of the Bible. And so much much that had been through the Middle Ages, as it were, through all the the textual changes that the Middle Ages brought. Mm -hmm. And so it bears very, very little relation to the English Bible. Um, So it's a good question why it was so important. And the arguments that were made at the time had a lot to do with uh, Christianity in Britain. Mm-hmm. In, I'm, I'm going to say, I mean, I'm, I have to be careful not to use Britain and England interchangeably. I'm going to say England here because Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and Ireland as was at the time, don't get much of a look in here. So let, we'll stick with England. But about Christianity in England, about the, the nature of England as some kind of center of the world. 1933 was, was a period between the wars when there was... A, a, a real crisis in in England about what its place in the world was. The First World War had had begun to really bring an end to the British Empire. 
um, and nationalism was um, still pretty rife around the world. And I think the codex, the arguments made about the codex have to do with England looking for a place for itself within a kind of center of Christendom. So it's trying to find a place for itself. And, and the Codex was made um, around the same time as three other Bibles that we have um, that, that that exist in the world. One is in the Vatican Library. The other two at this time were already in England. And there's a lot of arguments uh, in 1933 made by the British Museum and like the Archbishop of Canterbury gets involved and so does the Prime Minister. and And they're saying things like, we already have two out of, of these four Bibles that are the kind of the earliest versions of the text, complete versions of the text. To, to own the Codex Sinaiticus would make England the center of biblical scholarship. Mm-hmm. It, would, it would make England a, a, a place where the Bible is... Um, it, it, they, there's a lot about bringing the Bible home. There's a lot about kind of the England. It, England owns the Bible, and there's a kind of sense of ownership over the text, even though, even though the text doesn't. I mean, it, it bears some resemblance to what is understood at the time as the Bible in England, but it's it's not exactly the same. And you do get dissent. You know, you do get pe- some people mm-hmm. saying this really isn't all that important. Um, it has nothing to do with the English Bible, and you know it's perfectly accessible in the Soviet Union and they can, why don't they just keep it or or send it to um, a research library in America? And if we really need it, our scholars can go over there. But the people who are really driving this argument are uh, the British Museum staff, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and to some extent, the prime minister at the time, actually Ramsay Mm -hmm. MacDonald is, is also very involved. And so you kind of have the, it's, you, you have, uh, the kind of the kind of upper echelon of the political and cultural class in England saying England is the home of Christianity and, and therefore we should have the earliest versions of the Bible. Um, right. And that's a really, that's a really both normal, but also kind of strange argument to make when, especially when you compare it to something like Doomsday, which seems a lot more obviously English, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think many things about England, but thinking of it as the a center of Christendom is not anything that ever crossed my mind before. So it is kind of interesting that they make that argument. You know, this uh, this is a I want to say this is around the same time. I'm I'm not an expert on this, but I want to say this is around the same time that um the lyrics to Jerusalem are being written, which uh which go, we shall build Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. That might be late 19th century. That might not be the 1930s, but um, set to a William Blake poem, I believe. Right. But that's a big, that's a big thing here. They like, or they did like, and there's still remnants of that kind of sense of Mm -hmm. England is the home of Christianity. Right. Right. Maybe, maybe like in the, in the eighth century. (laughs) I've I've just looked up the hymn Jerusalem, ah. and it was written in 1808. Oh, okay, so quite a, bit yes, quite a bit more. But it did. It became. It was really popularized during the First World War. Right there, we go. There we go. There we go. Yeah. yeah. And and the other thing that's happening at this time is in in the in the years between 1900. Well, really from the 1880s uh, onward to 1930s. Um, there's a big pu- archaeological push going on mm-hmm. across a number of different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so Germany, France, the United States are participating in this, and they're sending archaeologists to the Middle East to look for evidence of ancient cultures, right? They're, they're stocking their museums with Rosetta stones and sarcophagi and, and what have you. But one of the mm-hmm. big things that comes out of this kind of push to excavate the Levant, as it were, is a field that's known as at the time as biblical archaeology. And biblical archaeology is an attempt to prove the truthfulness of the Bible. Right. And we can we can get it we can get into why they they feel the need to do that. Um, and that has a lot to do with Darwin and uh, evolution and kind of new scientific understanding of of origins. 
but a lot of manuscript material is being sent back from the Levant to various museums across the, let's say, Western Europe and America. And they're really looking, it's both a, a physical excavation in the sense that they're literally unearthing things from the earth, although fewer actual fragments of manuscript material so that tends to be more physical stuff although they do find fragments of manuscript material but it's also a textual excavation mm-hmm. they're looking in the text of the bible and the er- and they're looking for the earliest versions of those texts in order to uncover what scribes were doing at the time and understand the changes that were made to biblical texts over time and that kind of thing and how they're tr- they're trying to get to like the core like the, mm-hmm. the what what is the the first thing that was written as that we can call the Bible? And this is this is a this is a fool's errand in many respects. And around the right. early thirties, you get uh, staff at the British Museum saying, "This is something of a fool's errand." It's it, it's interesting, and we care, and we think it's important to do, but we're never going to arrive at a at a core solid text. But but the Codex represents that kind of a potential kind of core proof of like this is the original text mm-hmm. and if we own it then we own the bible right interesting there's a lot there <laughs> <laughs> it's a very weird complicated deal like like a uh, set of cultural constructions that are going on at the time right but if we compare that to doomsday right the way doomsday has been treated as a national treasure we get into there's a big contrast in terms of Doomsday was made in England. It's written in Latin, which was, of course, at the time, the language of record and writing. It represents facts about England. It, I suppose to some extent it was made by, in theory, Normans, although that's there's some evidence to suggest that the idea might have been had by the English, by, by an mm-hmm. Englishman who was familiar with England. And it has been kept in an English archive forever. It has never been on the market. It's never been sold. There's never been any question as to whether or not it's uh, valuable to England. It's an English document through and through in many ways. Yeah. And and there's one copy, there's one bound copy that is the Doomsday book. There's something called Doomsday, uh, a great Doomsday, and there's something called Little Doomsday. Okay. So, and there's something called Exxon Doomsday. <laughs> so okay. I suppose I'm I'm probably referring to Great Doomsday, but Great Doomsday covers 31 counties between the English Channel and the Tees River, which runs just through uh, sort of Newcastle across. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have Northumberland or Cumbria, partly because by 1086 the Normans hadn't made it that far Um, but and so that covers 31 counties and there's something called little doomsday which covers essex suffolk and norfolk which are not in great doomsday and then there's a smaller one called exxon doomsday which covers cornwall devonshire dorset somerset and wiltshire so the southwest part of england Mm mm-hmm and those counties are also in Great Doomsday. But the way that okay. Doomsday was made, it's a survey. So the way it was made was people were sent out to different counties to, to report on what was there, <laughs> effectively. And they compiled notes, and then they brought them back to kind of central uh, cities or central kind of scriptoria where those notes could be copied into other books, in, in, into sort of compiled Mm-hmm. Um, and then those compiled books were sent to a, a single central location where they were then copied again. Again, exactly. right. And so Exxon Doomsday and Little Doomsday are kind of the intermediary stages. And the material in Exxon Doomsday did make it into Great Doomsday. And the material in Little Doomsday, which covers East Anglia, did not make it into Great Doomsday. Got it. Yes. And all. I'm not actually not sure where Exxon Doomsday is. It might be in Exeter, but certainly Great mm-hmm. Doomsday and Little Doomsday are in the National Archives at Kew right. here in London. At Kew, yeah. And do any of the so so that's it. So none of the other intermediary stages survive. No, Those are the exactly. ones that we have. Yeah, that's what we've got. Yeah, 
Cool. It's a, it's a fun manuscript. It's it's more organized than anything I've ever written in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very well organized. It is a genuine feat of fabulous organization. Which is yeah. Probably why I like it. It's it's great. Do you does anybody have any idea how many people it it took to do this work? Because you're sending people out, and you know, then the copyists and all of that any sense at all it must have been a huge under huge number of people that's a good question i i don't have a great sense of that but i it was certainly a lot so you get um groups of i'm gonna i'm gonna check this because i think it kind of matters okay. you get kind of what, what are known as the king's commissioners so there's about seven or eight kind of panels of bishops and earls who are being sent to a number of counties each and they kind of do a circuit of, of the counties and I don't know how many would be on any given panel, but they're the ones kind of taking the notes. They go around to each place and people are expected to report to them and let them know how many cows they own, how many sheep, how many plows, how many people live there, how many households there are, uh, what else to how much tax they paid in just before 1066. And they take their notes and then they bring it back to their kind of regional scriptoria where these things are compiled these kind of intermediary stages are compiled. And then that's taken to a central location, which I think was Winchester, but don't quote me on that. And one of the most fascinating things about Doomsday is that it was written by one scribe. Oh. The great Doomsday (laughs) was the same hand the whole way through. The whole way through. So there's just like one guy... Yeah, and all of everything's coming to to him, and he's just sitting there. He's probably got a window, some candles, lots of ink. <laughs> they bring every time he runs out, they bring him more ink. I love this guy. Just going and, I mean, I don't know how long it took to actually compile the final central document, as it were, but they did this over the course of like a year, like ten eighty seven, ten eighty seven, sometime in there. They're, they're doing this, they're doing their circuits, they're bringing stuff back, they're copying out the intermediary stages, they're delivering those to the central location. And one guy, as they're coming in, he's just sitting there writing it out. And it's amazing, because like, like some of the stuff from the intermediary kind of books, documents, like Little Doomsday, he doesn't copy into Great Doomsday. Yeah. So um, Little Doomsday has evidence of like specific numbers of animals, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. And they're really, they're counting every pig. They're counting everything. And and this comes to him and he is like, I cannot. I cannot. I do not have. He like drops it on the floor and sort of pushes it under the bookshelf. He's like, I'm not bothered. But I I think we we sort of assume that the other ones, the ones he did copy into Great Doomsday, that they also had information about the number of cows, pigs, horses, sheep, dogs, etc. And he just just can't be bothered with that either. So he just doesn't. He doesn't copy that out. He he copies out, like, more often than not, it's, like, plowshare, you know, the number of plows, the number of slaves, mm-hmm. the number of, the, the acreage of meadow, that kind of thing. Most importantly, what it's worth. In terms of course. Because you got to tax it. It's all about the taxation. All so. about the taxation. And it's, it's yeah. an astonishing administrative document in that sense. Um, I want a, I want a movie now. Of, of about like the making of the doomsday book maybe i'm the yeah. only person but like ha- follow the characters out and they have little adventures and probably the people that they're you know they, they're not welcome you know no, and then there's one, and then there's the one guy in the room. <laughs> like copying it out. occasional comic relief just cut to the scribe <laughs> sitting in his room he's chained to his desk Yes, literally chained, and they keep bringing my stuff, and he's just like, ah, I love it. Yeah. yeah, so I'm so I am correct in thinking that they weren't welcome. Is that yeah, a correct were, assumption? We have some contemporary references saying that they were they were pretty unwelcome. Um, yeah, I I don't I don't know if they I, I imagine they went and sort of sat in a single place and said, "Come to us and tell us where you live." But they might have actually inspected every. Uh, it's divided up by hundreds, which is a certain unit of land that we're not actually totally clear exactly how that's measured but um yeah. we're not sure if yeah they sat in a central location and said you have to come but i should be clear i'm not sure <laughs> so, yeah as well, it worked exactly <laughs> but it's pretty comprehensive so i i thought i'd give an example just by way of interest. i don't know if that's if anybody's keen on that and i have i have a picture of the manuscript itself i should say doomsday and the codex sinaiticus are both 
fully digitized. So yes, the, and we'll include links and images in the show notes. Great. Okay, so they can both be accessed accessed online. Mm-hmm. So my, my partner grew up in a place called, uh, in Cheshire, just south of Manchester, called Potshrigley, which I was actually sad to find that despite its excellent name, Potshrigley <laughs> is not in the Doomsday Book. Oh, no. Um, but <laughs> the nearest place that is in Doomsday Book is a place called Butley. And uh, this is a pretty standard kind of idea of what an entry sounds like. But it tells you that in, in a hundred called Hammiston, which is the kind of larger unit of land, a man named Robert holds Butley of the Earl of Cheshire. Hundinger held it and was a free man. And when they use the past tense there, they mean... Hundinger was an Anglo-Saxon man who held it in 1066 when the Normans conquered England. Right. There is one hide paying geld. There is land for five plows. It is waste except for 12 sown acres. In the time of King Edward, it was worth 30 shillings. It is now worth two shillings. Oh. There are two and a half acres of meadow. There is woodland three leagues long and one league wide. And one enclosure there. So that's that's a fairly standard entry. Sometimes you get more information mm-hmm. about how many households there are, how many people live there, but ultimately that's kind of what it sounds like. And when when they when they say it is waste except for twelve sown acres, mm-hmm. it used to be worth thirty shillings, now it's worth two. There's a lot of that in Doomsday. Mm-hmm. And the, the causality of that wasteland is unclear, but to some mm-hmm. extent, I, it might be because they, they laid waste to it. Right, right. <laughs> so it's not it's not the owner's fault that it's waste. Not necessarily. It may, yeah. it may have prior, previously been wasteland to some extent, but um, the Normans did a lot of damage when they conquered yeah. England. And so they're going around saying, what was it worth before we arrived? That's a really fascinating part. Is pretty much every entry has an in, has a, a has some detail about what it was worth before 1066 or in 1066 mm-hmm. before the Normans arrived, and Doomsday was completed uh, 20 years after that. So then there is detail about what it's worth at that in, in 1086, so contemporaneously, yeah. and and that's a really fascinating insight into both what England was worth, but and how that changed, but also the damage that the Normans did in the person yeah. of the Norman Conquest. Going from 30 shillings to two shillings is a really, really big difference. Yeah, that's a big like, loss. That's a huge loss. I'm not good at math. So yeah. That seems like No. <laughs> Me neither, but come on. It's a small percentage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lindsay made a friend. Oh, hello. <laughs> her cat came and sat Hi. on her lap. He's beautiful. Hi. Oh, thank you. This is Percy. He he he's a silent guest on many of our programs. <laughs> he's huge. He's a big cat. He's a big boy. Hmm. All right. Cool. So, what is another? What's another thing that that you love about these manuscripts that you could tell us about? Okay, so I'm gonna. Oh, we've set, we've gotten through a couple of the things accidentally. Oh yeah, <laughs> this tends to happen. We ask people to come with three things, and then we end up sort of going around, and it's like, oh yeah, we did that. <laughs> right? So. Yeah. Um. So one of the things I have on here is that they're not illuminated, mm-hmm. which is not meant to be a dig at <laughs> at illuminated <laughs> manuscripts and people who love them, um, but is more that my own love of administrative documents <laughs> and Penix and Idesis is not an administrative document but I think because it's you know it's valued and has been for a long time for its textual content to some extent mm-hmm. and to the extent that it contains certain variations uh, on the bible but because the text is so similar to the text of a lot of other manuscripts you know in the same way that mm-hmm. You, when you get like a book of hours, the interest is not necessarily the, the text of the book of hours. The interest is what's mm-hmm. around it. Right. Um, the, and, and maybe some textual variations to tell you like when in the in the sequence of books of hours text it might have existed, but they're so similar that, that it's really about what people project onto it. And so there's a real yeah. difference between the two. 
um, mm -hmm. in the sense that one is a very, very unique textual document. The Doomsday is is there's nothing like it. We have no evidence of any any other endeavor quite that uh, organized and complete. And and Sinaiticus is in many respects also a unique textual document in the same way that all manuscripts are. Um, mm -hmm. But because the text is very familiar and is is it, we see it as a Bible and one in many respects amongst many, it's more about what people project onto it uh, in terms right. of what their own interest is. And that that's absolutely the case with illuminated manuscripts as well. But I think there's something really interesting about the relationship that people have with the text of a book as mm -hmm. meaningful to them, as a text that is very recognizable to them in some respects. But then when you actually look at the codex, it's totally unrecognizable. Do you guys want to see a picture of it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I've sent you a link. Folio 217B. Yeah. Which is Mark, the opening of Mark. And can I can I describe what I see on this page? Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Can do that. All right. So it is, it's, it looks like the manuscript is probably big just because there are four columns of text. Mm -hmm. which is pretty unusual. There are four narrow columns. It's written in, in Greek capitals, I guess. I'm not sure what you call the Magis script. Magiscules. Yeah, Greek magiscules. Magiscules. And there are pretty, pretty good-sized uh, margins. It looks like there's a little note maybe right at the bottom, mm -hmm. at the bottom of the last column. And there are letters written off in the in the left margins too which maybe i don't know what's going on with those letters but if i didn't it looked i mean so when i look at bibles usually i'm looking at like 13th century <laughs> you know like paris bibles that are in right. in latin and this looks really different yeah it's very stark yeah isn't it yeah it's very stark there's no spacing between the letters um, yeah entirely in i they're called magicals but yeah we kind of recognize them as, as capitals in some respect yeah, and they just flow into each other. Just call you know line after line after line. There's no punctuation. There's no space. There's sorry. There are spaces between those, but there's no there's no punctuation. There's no spaces between words. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all it. So it it is written by we think about three different scribes. This one, so it's not a, a sort of doomsday single man chained to a desk kind of situation. Mm -hmm. But it's not really what anybody in the western church would recognize as a bible except for the fact that mm -hmm. the text is divided into these the, the letters that you mentioned in the margins next to each column those indicate what are known as the eusebian canons eusebian eusebian canons which is an early right like canon tables i've yeah that's the what the canon tables are yeah, exactly. right so the eusebian canons were an early way of dividing up the sections and chapters of the book the the the, the chapter and verse sections that we have now are 13th 14th century invention i think mm -hmm. um and the eusebian can canons were an earlier way of doing that and in some manuscripts the codex does not have this but in some manuscripts you get these beautiful big illuminated kind of carpet pages of mm -hmm. of which which are dem which are showing it's like almost like an index i think to the to the eusebian canons so that you can see where each one starts basically it's kind of a, a record yeah. but they're really beautiful there's one in a in an english book it's also in the british library called the codex amiatinus which is very famous yep. yeah i'll put that in the in the show notes so people can see that too because those are really interesting but yeah it looks it looks very different from other medieval bibles yeah totally unillumined sure. um just text after text but in but very, again in some texts like doomsday very neat very neat, very organized. Mm -hmm. And if you, this is, I think this is fun, especially this part of why I chose this page is because if you zoom to the kind of bottom right, and we will make this link available to people so that they can, don't just see the picture, but they'll be able to scroll around it into the bottom right. And then if you see in the top left corner of the image, there's a, there's some words. One says raking light and one says standard light. Yeah. So if you click on raking light, okay, do you see any differences? In the bottom? Yeah, around the kind of bottom right. Not necessarily in the text itself, but with the page. Oh, I see the ruling. Yeah, exactly. Yes. You can really make out the ruling. This is a 1700-year-old manuscript. <laughs> and the ruling is still there. 
for the rubrics for making sure that they got the right number of lines in each column. Mm-hmm. The columns are evenly spaced from each other. And I mean, to yeah. some extent, that's the nature of parchment, that it holds those. But I just think that's astonishing. Because ruled lines are not inked. I mean, they're just kind of inscribed. Mm-hmm. They're almost etched almost into into the parchment. Yeah. Um, and I would have thought that they could kind of even out with the years, you know. But this one still has, right. it very much has the the details of how the manuscript was put together. Yeah, you know, was sort of thought through. And they are very even. Yeah, they're very that's, even. That- that even that in and of itself would have taken a lot of time because this is a very long. This is folio two seventeen, and we're in Mark. So yeah, it, how many uh, how many folios does it have total? Exactly. It has number yeah, three hundred and forty seven folios. Yeah, um, that's I, a lot. I think that's just the version in. So the majority of the manuscript, the bound section, is in the mm-hmm. British Library, but there are some extra folios which are also in, in the, there's some in the University of Leipzig. There's a couple at the Monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai. Well, that's nice that they got to keep some. A, yeah, well, they found them after it was lifted. Oh. Lifted. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a fun story, actually. That's a, that's a proper kind of adventure story. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, how, how, the, how the Codex made its way from Mount Sinai to, to Russia. How did it make its way from, I mean, it didn't make its way. It didn't like get up and walk. Somebody must have taken it at some point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was the 1860s and this kind of, this kind of fad for biblical texts was taking off. And mm. a German scholar named Konstantin von Tischendorf. That's a great name. <laughs> he's a member of the German aristocracy. He was kind of sponsored by the Tsar of Russia to sort of travel the world looking for biblical texts. And he made his way to the monastery of Mount Sin- of St. Catherine's on Mount Sinai at one point, And he was looking at various other things as well. And the story is uh, pretty garbled by, <laughs> to some extent, but he claims that he saw the leaves of the unbound manuscript in a, in a sort of waste bin that was being used by the monks to fuel their fire. And he sort of he sort of saved it at the last moment, and a couple of leaves mm, sacked mm. the fire or what have you. This seems extremely unlikely. I um, I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah, I, people did, but I think it's because they they wanted to to some extent. Yes. And he, I, if I remember correctly, he doesn't get it then and there. He he sort of convinces them to let him take it away briefly so he can copy it out. And he takes it to Alexandria mm-hmm. in Egypt and he, he gets a load of people to transcribe it very, very quickly and then sends it back to Mount Sinai. But then a couple of years later, he sort of returns to the monastery and, and basically persuades them to part with it. And how he persuaded them is a little unclear. Um, there does mm-hmm. seem to have been a sort of thank you payment made because he, he gives it to the Tsar of Russia at the time. Right. There's a kind of thank you payment that seems to be made from the Tsar as a kind of gift it's what's phrased as a gift to the monastery so they're not buying it you're just giving me the book and then i'm giving you money as a gift right exactly and, right. and also some political favors to your abbot within the eastern orthodox mm-hmm. church um, mm-hmm. there was, there's some discussion of the abbot wanting a particular position and um this is sort of facilitated by the czar within the eastern orthodox church and it's right. all sort of smoothed over a little bit Tischendorf gives it to the Tsar of Russia and it goes into the Imperial State Library so then more eventually a couple more leaves are found at the monastery later but then the manuscript goes it goes into the Imperial State Library in the I think this is 1883 sure. yeah in the early 1880s and then 30 years later the Russian Revolution happens Yes. And the Bolsheviks confiscate state property mm-hmm. or confiscate imperial property on behalf of the state. And uh, it still lives in the Imperial State Library, which becomes, I think it's called at the time, the Russian Public Library. And then in 1933, the Soviets are auctioning off vast quantities of imperial art uh, and books, of which um, quite a lot are in New York Public Library. Amongst other amongst right. other places, we don't have to go into it, but yeah. it is interesting that it ended up in the New York Public Library. This that all, that a, a lot of this other stuff. Yeah, did. a lot of it that, through through yeah. I think the the 
I don't know enough about exactly that that area of things, but my impression is that the um, librarians at New York Public Library are very enterprising. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. They like, so, sorry, that was a that was a tangent. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. but I mean, th- let me tell you, the the Russian state auctions, the the Soviet auctions of art, are yeah. a fascinating and severely understudied topic. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we won't necessarily be getting any access to the Russian archives on that matter anytime mm-hmm. soon. But it's a it's a whole thing, and. There's been a little bit of scholarship done on it, mainly at the end of the Soviet Union, when they also they still didn't really have access to Russian archives on this. So there's never been like mm-hmm. nobody's ever really studied the Russian perspective on this. But the Russians are auctioning off a lot right. of confiscated luxury possessions and rare books and uh, regular books as well, to some extent. Uh, an English dealer, a dealer from England, I should say. He's actually a, a German Jew. But um, a dealer from England goes over to the Soviet Union in the, ni- in the early 1930s and <laughs> ostensibly to sort of advise them on the best way to auction off their cultural heritage. And mm-hmm. uh, he sees the codex. He, he, he's taken around. He's Basically, they, they, they say, yeah, you can come and advise us on this if you want. And then they won't meet with him for two weeks. So he, can, oh, no. he conveniently has a lot <laughs> of time to go visit the Hermitage Museum. And, right. and to go visit the Russian National Library. And uh, he sees the codex. He's possibly shown the codex. And he goes, yeah, well, I could sell that. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and the Soviets go, all right, then. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and so he comes back to England and basically approaches the British Museum and says, do you want this? And the British right. Museum absolutely jumps at the opportunity. Despite the fact that this right. is 1933 and... You know, the Great Depression has happened four years beforehand uh, mm-hmm. in certainly in America. In Europe, the Great Depression takes more the form of a kind of uh, banking crisis in 1931. Just two years before, there's quite a lot of financial insecurity. And, and yet there's a lot of money and time expended on raising £100,000 for this book. And £100,000 in 33 would be about how much? Do you have a sense oh, of how man. much it would be today? Uh, I feel like I've seen this somewhere. I mean, we're talking something in the in the ballpark of five million. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. A lot of money. money. Yeah, it's not yeah. as much as is being spent on oil paintings at the time. Right. But it's a lot of money. I love these stories about how books moved around. I know on, on the pod we tend to talk more about the books themselves, but mm. this is the stories of what of what happened to the books. I think is really fun, interesting. Yeah, how they how they circulate and and who wants them and why. Yeah, and that and that this country was willing to spend all of this money at at, at a time of crisis, <laughs> not actually on like solving the crisis, but on like let's buy this great Bible so we can have it, you know. Yeah, which is you know it's just really familiar. Like I feel like I feel that today, <laughs> our priorities have not changed our priorities government priorities right well this is this is, the, this is the thing i mean just to be clear they don't really allow for a huge amount of objection but where they do yeah. there is a fair bit of objection yeah so the, yeah the process of deciding that this is an important thing that england should have the british museum should hold in trust for the nation and what have you the way they do it and when i say they i mean the british museum staff the archbishop of canterbury and the prime minister and the treasury gets involved as well because they're obviously in charge of finding the money the way that they do it completely bypasses parliamentary oversight of this government expenditure so right they just they're like we can't there's a whole thing where the treasury goes we can't really do this we can't find them the soviets want the money up front if if they're going to get the money later they're going to charge more so they to keep it right. affordable they want the money up front and the tra- affordable i'm using air quotes <laughs> they claim that they have an offer or they have previously had an offer of like two hundred fifty thousand dollars from america which is actually uh-huh. not that much in dollars that's not that much more than a hundred thousand pounds but they're saying we could get more elsewhere we you know right. we could take it elsewhere but if you want it now we'll give it to you for a hundred thousand pounds and the treasury says we can't find that money without uh going to parliament and getting them to say that that we can spend that money. Uh, but here's a really like, I don't want to say underhanded, but like, here's a really complicated and complex way that actually we could just pay up the money sooner mm-hmm. rather than later, and then take it to parliament six months later and, and get their approval. So they like find a way to make right. that happen. But by that point, 
the money has already been spent. The money has been given to the right. Soviets. And in the meantime, the, there's a public fundraising campaign launched. Right. And the rhetoric around this and the, the, the way that it's worded and pitched is like deliberately obscures the fact that the government has already forked over the money. Mm, so, the, mm-hmm. so the government launches this campaign and says, we, the government, will match pound for pound what is donated by the public. Does that sound familiar at all? It's like the first, like, I don't think it's the first, but it's like a match campaign. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Saying yes. For every pound the public donates, we'll donate a pound. So really, the government will only cover 50,000. But they've already flipped right. out 100 grand. Right. So presumably they're just taking that money then and just putting it back in the coffers, yeah. whatever's raised. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But but if the public had known that the government had just forked over the money, I think the impetus to donate would have been a lot lower. I wouldn't because because they're made to think they're made the public is made to think that if they don't donate, it's lost. That if they don't right. donate, the nation won't obtain this invaluable Bible. Right. But they're misled. The nation owns it. The nation has bought it. Yeah, the taxpayer has bought it. Importantly, uh, yeah. So and and then they just totally there's no parliamentary oversight of that expenditure whatsoever. There's there's a vote six months later, but they don't get a chance to debate. <laughs> and so you get occasional yeah you you do get some people being like, why are we doing this at a time when like tax child tax credits have been revoked? You know, people are people can't mm-hmm. afford to feed their children, and the government is like reducing the amount that they receive for child care and that kind of thing it's yeah it's nuts yeah it's yeah priorities people allocate to these things are crazy yeah and i love manuscripts and i think it's crazy (laughs) you're like it could you know and and there's a couple people there's there's, they write to a few scholars the british museum and they say could you just could you just say that you think this is a good and important thing so that we can give it to the treasury because the treasury wants some (laughs) wants some opinions on this and a couple scholars write back and they're like, no, that can't be any. <laughs> they're like, I don't care. But partly because, partly because the codex was photographed in uh-huh. 11 and 1913. So there's a, there's a photograph facsimile version of it that you can buy for a hundred pounds, which is expensive at the time, right. you know, but it's, but it exists. You can buy it. Right. And so, so all this, even the scholars, some of the scholars want it there and then so they can access it but some of the scholars are like let it go to paris or america or whatever we have copies and if we really need it we can go see it that's so that's so weird yeah yeah it's a strange cultural construction going on to make people it is this is important it is strange but in a way i know dot earlier you said that it didn't make any sense to you why you know the english were considering themselves I don't know, the keepers of the Bible or whatever. Right, a center of Christendom. <laughs> a center of Christendom, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Which was not at all the impression that I got growing up. Ah. And some of this is because my grandfather was an Episcopal priest who mm-hmm. was also a serious Anglophile. Ah. But, you know, the impressions that I got growing up were that yes England was a very important protector of Christianity Mm -hmm. and makes perfect sense to me growing up with all of that messaging why they would have wanted to do this right whether that's I mean clearly it's ridiculous but (laughs) they had made it their identity and they Mm -hmm. were going to keep that but I mean it's it it's funny you say that because I was I was raised in the states in an Episcopalian household as well, and so to some extent, some of this makes sense to me as well. I and it is both ridiculous and, as you say, also comprehensible mm-hmm. in the sense that people do donate. You know, people do mm-hmm. raise over fifty percent of the of the value, and it is in small bills. You know, it is in people yeah. sending mm-hmm. schools. They get their children to donate, you know, a couple pennies each, that kind of thing. And they, they send a little wad of cash and say, we would like it to be known that the children of Wigan are, uh, you know, appreciate high culture. <laughs> I, think, I think that one's actually the people of Wigan. I think there's a collection done in a public library and the people of Wigan would like it to be known that they appreciate high culture. And so they send that along. But schools take collections from from children and parents Rotary clubs or the equivalent of kind of English rotary clubs collect money 
and all the donation letters uh, exist in the in the British Library, and you can go look at them. and And there, are, people have a whole mixture of reasons for why they wanted mm-hmm. they want to do this. One, some of the, for some of them, it's a certain amount of pride and a kind of Anglo-Saxon Christianity that they have some sense they have some sense of it being ancient in some way. Their their mm-hmm. relationship with Christianity. Some of it is concerningly white supremacist. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it, not all of it so explicitly, but you know you can read you can read into this stuff. Um, right. Some of it is simply religious. Some of it is cultural. In the the people of Wigan saying they appreciate high culture. You know, it, <laughs> right. What makes this Bible high culture? <laughs> such is is a little unclear, except for the fact that it's being flogged by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the staff of the British Museum. Maybe you know, right. But people want to participate in this campaign, and and uh, I think really, what I find so fascinating about the Codex is the the, the things that different people impose, the, the meanings that different people impose on it, and mm-hmm. um, and I think the extent to which it's a national treasure is defined by the fact that it becomes nationally supported, right? Not by everybody, not right. not even by the majority of everybody, but it becomes a a big national endeavor to purchase this thing so much more important than anything that it actually contains. Well, was there, was there anything, any other points or Lindsay, do you want to ask your questions? <laughs> ask my <laughs> usual questions. Well, how did you get into this field? What brought you into the realm of medieval manuscripts? Medieval manuscripts specifically. I did my undergraduate in history and then I did my master's degree in medieval history. So, uh, I mean, I'm I'm American, and I moved over here to do my undergraduate degree. And I think I've always been, I've always been, certainly always been interested in history and the kind of history that we don't ha- have in the states. I think we have a lot of medievalists in the states because it's it it feels kind of exotic somehow, or it feels um, you know it feels like something we don't have as part of our personal history. So yes, can confirm is that as medievalist, okay. American medievalist. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's, that's my that's my well, it is in a way. It is in a way our personal history. It just it all happened in another place, and now we are in another place. And I, for one, am very curious about sort of where we came from before we were here, because mm-hmm. we don't come from here. Mm-hmm. Well, some people we, do. We, I was going to say we being <laughs> talking about like, like European Americans, yeah. That's a big part of what my project is kind of looking into and and we don't go so far as to say you know this has much impact on we we keep it scholarly as it were but mm-hmm. there is an interesting reason that white americans think of themselves as coming from britain or england or p- parts of the united kingdom as it were and a big part of looking at these manuscript collections that were created in the early 20th century because we have we have a member of the project also looking at uh, my colleague Danielle Magnuson spends a lot of time looking at American collections and there's a real sense in which there are white Americans in the early 20th century who are looking for cultural capital from Europe and they're importing cultural capital from Europe in order to furnish as you say the kind of their own history right and to say this is our history and this is where it comes from and this is they're built so JP Morgan um, obviously creates the Morgan Library in New York, which is one of the greatest collections of illuminated medieval material in the world. And John Paul Getty does the same. Huntington does the same. And so you get these kind of American industrialists and, and, and less wealthy people as well, but it's exemplified by American industrialists, kind of creating a, a European heritage for their, their mm-hmm. themselves as a kind of new aristocracy. And mm-hmm. and that has a really big influence on how Americans understand themselves and 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 how we understand our our past. And as Dot points out, obviously, like some people in America do come from there, and and yes. and the the white Americans in the early twentieth century who were putting together these collections did not look to Native American collections, for example, as a way of defining their history. They looked to Europe to kind of create this history for themselves. So that's that's a big part of how I got onto my my kind of current project was I I gave up medieval history in 2016 when uh, politics took a took a turn 
<laughs> for the better mm-hmm. or worse, depending on your perspective. But it took a turn, and I thought I need to I need to think a little bit more heavily about how we've gotten to where we have and what can be done about it. And um, I went off and did various other things. But when I came back to academia, I thought, what's the best way to get into this without looking at the medieval past as a as a kind of retreat, and more looking mm-hmm. at it as um, an active living thing that is used to influence the world as we understand it today. And that's why I got into kind of looking at nationalism and collections and, and how, how, how collections of medieval manuscripts influence the way nations perceive themselves and people in nations perceive themselves. Mm-hmm. But the reason I like unilluminated manuscripts is because I am at heart a medieval historian. <laughs> yes. I, I, just, I just want to be left alone with my manuscripts. You know? <laughs> Put me in an archive and give me a roll of charters any day. Did you have other questions, Lindsay? I wasn't sure if the... Yes. What's your favorite manuscript that you have met in person? Oh. I've met the Codex Sinaiticus through a glass box. <laughs> I haven't actually seen it. But favorite that I've met in person... They also won't let me see the Lindisfarne Gospels, except through a glass mm-hmm. box. Mm-hmm. Do you know I I'm, I'm such a I'm so basic about these things. I just I love the ones in the glass boxes, and I just want to get them out and touch them. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's totally fair. To, is there any that I have seen that I've loved more than the really spectacular ones that they won't let you touch, or just one that you feel a personal connection with? Could be like the first one you ever held in your hands, oh or they were charters. Yeah. So um, again, scraps of documentary evidence demonstrating uh, land rights but there is when I was a master student and I was working on charters uh, the ones I was working on were held in small archives more so than um, big, big public libraries so I was going I remember once going to New College Oxford they needed to look at one of their charters and and it was the first time in my life that somebody had unrolled a piece of parchment in front of me and then left the room Mm -hmm. (laughs) you just sort of sit there hyperventilating a little bit and I think for me manuscript a way of connecting with people in the past I feel a very real connection with the other people who have touched this or the other people who have Mm -hmm. held this and I I think that's the case in a lot of codex manuscripts as well um, because we like looking at codex manuscripts and, and saying, oh, this probably belonged to Mary, Queen of Scots. There's a lot of that. A lot of people, a lot of my students are like, this is the last book of Mary, Queen of Scots. You're like, how many questions are going to the scaffold with ladies? <laughs> they were just throwing books at her. <laughs> touch it, touch it. Grabbing them out of the air. Anyway, uh, but, you know, but we, we like that sort of thing. And, and I, I understand that. But for me, charters and... Um, administrative documents are specifically charters I think to some extent are so evocative of the way people were living their lives and the the impact of governance and politics and religion Mm -hmm. and culture on the way people like power dynamics and the way they were living so so my my master's degree was on the charters of the second wife of Henry the first Adeliza of Louvain and um she didn't do much, to be honest, but uh, <laughs> his first wife was a little more dynamic. Uh, but she outlived the, she outlived him. And at, when he died, that sparked the civil war in England, or what's known as the anarchy between uh, his daughter, mm-hmm. Matilda, the empress, and his nephew, Stephen. So there's a big war over the succession. And Adeliza just kind of, she just kind of goes off and becomes a dowager queen. And she's the first dowager queen since the Norman conquest. Mm -hmm. And she, she just kind of quietly goes off and gets on with things, but she's, she's very (laughs) quietly fighting for her rights and her status and her uh, role and her established kind of support in the context of her stepdaughter and her late husband's Mm -hmm. nephew kind of duking it out with each other. And you can see in these charters that she was issuing what she's trying to do and you can also you can it's just something about you know you you know who it's given to it has the name on it it says for you know x thane or whatever x we don't have thanes in norman england but um x count uh gets this much or x um this abbey gets that much and then and then you know that it was handed to them 
you know, you mm-hmm. know that they held this thing. And then you're sitting there in New College Library and the librarian or the archivist puts it out and rolls it out in front of you. And you're like, who, me? <laughs> Just little old me? Little <laughs> me? I mean, extremely humbling. Yeah, it feels it's yeah. such a privilege, and and it I just I feel it feels like one of those um like a like kind of those camera tricks in films where the the camera kind of zooms in through the person and they have like a flashback moment or something. Mm-hmm. That's kind of yeah. what I feel like when when one of these is put in front of me and I'm allowed to touch it. I get that a little bit less with uh, literary codices, I guess, or textual codices. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily correct. It's just that's just what my training has. Yeah, I think plenty of people get exactly mm-hmm. the same feeling from you know the the book of hours of a certain countess or mm-hmm. I don't know. Dot, do you do you get that? Yeah, I get that with pretty much every book, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I because because like you, I'm always thinking about the people who. And, and pr- almost every, I mean, with manuscripts, it's sort of interesting because it's obvious, even if there are no other signs of use, even if there are no notes in the margins and there's no dirt in the corners and the book appears to be exactly as it was when it was made, which is almost zero, right? Because books were handled and there are signs of that. But even then... It's a handwritten, you know, it's like a handwritten, handmade book. So there's scribes and there's people who made the ink and there's people who prepared the parchment and somebody bound it, you know, and how many, many, many hands. And that's, I'm always thinking about that. Yeah, it's a craft. It's a work of art in and of itself. It is. Even when there's no, like, quote unquote art, like even when it is you know, undecorated and unilluminated. There's still this sort of window window into the past of people, you know, doing that. Even if you're not reading the text, which Lindsay and I have had this conversation. I don't read the text, you know. <laughs> I'm interested in the text, but I'm not sitting down to read them. I'm thinking about other things that these books are doing. Yeah. Books of hours in that sense are great for that because as we said, mm-hmm. well, the texts are identical more often than not, or yeah. more identical, but, you know, very, very, very similar. Very similar. It almost gives yeah. you the opportunity to be like, okay, moving past the text, what else is going yeah. on in this book? And in some respects, I, I also don't read them. I mean, I read, yeah. I read, I read Doomsday <laughs> a bit. I have a printed copy in front of me, and I've, I've read some yeah. folios themselves. But I'm almost interested in all of that mm-hmm. in relation to the text. Right. That, right, again, right. I'm also not really interested in the text itself, but I am interested in the way that the text is understood, created, disseminated, that how the book is passed down, how it's handled, who's used it and why. And why. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm always, I'm consistently amazed by how much it can tell you. You know, how, how much a book tells us about the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, aside from the, the content of the knowledge that it's imparting. Yeah, and I feel like that's actually a really excellent place to end. Hmm. Is that is that a good is that good for you guys? Any last any last word? Are we good? No, everybody's looking at me. I don't All right. think so. So <laughs> excellent. So thank you so much, Olivia. This was really great. This was really All right. I feel like I I learned a lot and great conversation. I'm so glad. And yeah. it's good to meet you. Really and enjoyed. always good to see Lindsay. <laughs> we um, we didn't get much into the actual materiality of the books, but I assume that's sort of okay. It's okay. We'll 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 put uh, I'll put some images up in the in the show notes so people have something to look at. But okay. yeah. I think we talked about important things today. The Amiatinus Eusebian Canon table would be great. I think also if I can dig yeah. it out, there is a very 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 early silent video of the Codex Sinaiticus arriving at the British Museum. Ooh, yes. Oh, will, we'll get that too. I'll see if I can, that can find that. I'll email it to you. It's on Vimeo or something. It's easily found. I'd have to go okay. around. Uh, it's fascinating. It's one of those like British pathé kind of really early things where there's no talking, but, but it's interspersed with like black screens with text on them. With text on it. Does it have the janky piano music? Uh, exactly. The janky oh, piano. It rhymes. <laughs> it's actually silent because I think the, the janky piano music would have been played in the theater. Oh, it, yes. <laughs> it's silent. But yeah, it's. Uh, so no piano music. Yeah. All right. Super. I, uh, 
I really appreciate the opportunity. Also, this is cheeky. We technically have a project podcast, so if people are interested. Yes. But I was sort of supposed to <laughs> shamelessly self-plug <laughs> at some point, but would we, could we put it in the show notes? Would that be all right? We'll put it in the show notes. And what's the name of the project? So the project is called Cultivate Manuscripts. Right. The podcast is called The Cost of Culture. The Cost of Culture. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. Uh, we only right. have two episodes. Yep. We are, our production That's okay. are uh, not extensive. We plan to have a couple more in the next couple months. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been really fun. Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.